0: This is AudioGan, and I am your host, Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. AudioGAN presents Improvisation, a three-part series where I talk to artists to understand spontaneity, motivations to improvise, the process of it. And when does improvisation become part of the main set? Satyajit Ray once said, there's always room for improvisation. I think uh, this needs a lot more investigation. And referring to Ray's comment uh, on room for improvisation, today we have the honour of to have Dr. Trina Banerjee with us on audio again. We'll talk about improvisation in the context of theatre, plays, playwriting and performance at large. Trina is an uh, assistant professor in cultural studies at Center of Studies in Social Sciences, Calcutta. Her research interests include gender, performance, political theater, theories of body, post-colonial theater, and South Asian history. She's also been a theater and film actress as well as a journalist and fiction writer. So welcome Trina to Audio again, and thanks for giving your time. It's a real honor to have you on the show.
1: Thanks so much. I was really looking forward to this as well because I haven't done too many podcasts in my life and um, it does, uh, you know, uh, the work you do seems so interesting. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this as well. Thank you for asking
0: me. Great, thanks. So as I mm-hmm. started off uh, by Ray's comment of, of uh, there's mm-hmm. always room for improvisation. Uh, I wanted to kick off the conversation by like, yeah, just like, setting the context for like what what according to you is improvisation and then we'll see how it unfolds so uh, how do you see it
1: Right, I I actually started thinking about it when you sent me the questions and I was thinking that uh, there are many ways perhaps we can approach this word in the sense that often theatre people or performance uh, people say, when we say improvisation, we think of a certain thing. But if you think of it uh, kind of broadly in terms of its kind of general meaning, uh, uh, there are many, many different kinds of implications in many, uh, many spheres of life. Right, so usually, see how we operate, and I'll give you examples in in a couple of minutes. Um, How we live our lives actually sort of uh, is at the intersection of various kinds of structures, right? Whether it be uh, structures of language, structures of the law, structures of how, uh, say, of communication, of different kinds of communication, even games have structures. So the games that we play also are governed by certain kinds of rules. Uh, according to which you play uh, play the game, and if you don't, then you know you're thrown out, or you 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 know you you, you sort of you totally decimate yours, and that's true for even video games and things like that, right? So, so I I do feel, and I will I will also refer to a couple of scholars here later in in a bit, but I I do feel that um, we could look at the way human life progresses and the socialization of human beings uh, in this kind of continuous tension between structure and the breaking of that structure, uh, you know, uh, and, and the impulse to break that structure, right? Uh, so so while it's true that if we did not follow the rules of grammar at this particular moment, you would not understand me and I would not understand you, right? Uh, we, are, we are understanding each other precisely because uh, we are agreeing implicitly to follow certain rules that this is how i'm going to construct my sentence and if i de- decided at this moment that i want to rebel against this structure altogether and speak in a completely different syntax this conversation would make no sense hmm. that that's one one aspect of it the other aspect is that if these structures then become uh, too strict you know too stifling then the human impulse is also uh, to kind of militate against them, to try to break free, to do something to, to destabilize that structure. Because uh, we define, at least in the way that Enlightenment philosophy has understood, man, we define our humanity, our, our sort of role as thinking beings uh, through this capacity to think and act Mm. freely to reason. Mm. And so if one is asked to blindly follow a structure, uh, that in some fundamental sense seems to be detrimental to the idea of freedom and reason, right? so mm. so blindly following a structure we often say this in common conversation we don't need to think very philosophically just common are you a robot what do we mean when we say that to someone it's it's not a nice thing to say to another human being when we say that and that might soon change with ai and everything but the, when we say that now it's usually some some kind of a put down right that you are mm. uh, i mean if i call you a robot that means i i am a sort of uh, discounting your capacity to think and act freely that you're entirely programmed by by certain structures that govern you you're mm. unable to act uh, in a in a sort of in a, a sort of um, a- agentive way mm. aut- autonomously right mm. and the sense of autonomy is is somehow historically in all our minds it, you know associated with the idea of reason. The capacity to think freely means the capacity to act freely. Hmm. So that's the paradox. So while we need these structures in order for our lives to make sense, on the other hand, um, our impulse towards freedom always uh, sort of rebels against these structures when they become too too constricting. right? Hmm. So I think a tension between these two impulses defines, you know, various kinds of historical transformations, how society functions at certain points. If you look at, you know, let's say human history, if you just look at look back at the 20th century, there are there will be just commonsensical, if you think of certain decades, you will have an overarching of impression of a particular decade in a particular part of the world as being either transformative. Or conservative right hmm. so, broadly broadly there are often obviously contradictory in, impulses within them as well so often if you think of 1950s america you would think of that at uh, that time uh, being a time of reconstruction because post second world war you know it was important to rebuild society which is why certain values of you know Uh, stability, conventional family, gender roles became very, very important. So in a sense, one was reconstructing after a period of devastation. And it seemed to be safer to follow certain kinds of societal norms which were conventional and safe, right? But if you see uh, a decade later, beginning with the early 60s, going towards in the late 60s, you see Then a contradictory impulse, the impulse for rebellion, you know, the next generation no longer accepts uh, these strictures as necessary. They see what their parents had seen as stability as in fact stifling. Hmm. And then you come to this, the generation of Woodstock, the late sixties are turbulent all across the world, creative. Um, they uh, so so you have uh, you know the, uh, hippie uh, movement. the hippie movement you have 1968 france in india you have you know a huge amount of political turmoil uh you have the vietnam war you have huge sort of protests in in america against war within the country in 68 in france the students take over the streets and uh, you know the universities they you know they align with the workers there's so much upheaval and this happens within a period of you know 10 to 15 years because this tension you know between what is seen as stability and what tends to be uh, the militating force against stability which is seen as constraint
0: right sorry if I I, I may interrupt uh, uh, like if we want to go like one level deeper also to understand that why do we need to break structures? I mean, is it just for freedom or is it, I mean, there could be two ways to look at it, right? I mean, yeah. just to be more creative, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you you can't really live in a confined way. And because I remember uh, uh, having a conversation with Varun Grover a long time back and I asked him that where does creativity come from? And he beautifully explained sometimes it's because you're given freedom and sometimes it's because you are, sort of confined uh, and there is always this pull and push happening uh, for you to express yourself. So, like where do you think it Hmm. does it sort of is seen more when it is confined or is it seen when it is like more liberal?
1: There's no one, one rule. I mean, you would find... So, for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. This period that I spoke about in the US of A, uh, one woman's life actually defines, uh, you know, who we all know. But if you actually begin to look at her writing and her crisis, you will see that it's very easy to actually see what was happening to her as also symptomatic of what was happening to America. So if you look at Sylvia Blatt's poetry, for example, through the 1950s, you know, and she dies in the early 60s, I think 1963 she dies, 1961 she dies. uh, She is trying very hard to be everything at the same time, a mother, a good wife to her, you know, poet, genius, husband, Ted Hughes, um, she's, she's trying to do everything possible uh, in order to actually fit into the norm of what, what is considered to be a successful uh, woman who is also a good housewife, a good homemaker, a good mother, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And she constantly finds herself struggling to meet all of these expectations and she's lonely, she gets lonelier and lonely and she's all of this in fact her brilliant intellect her loneliness all of this shows up in her poetry and she's almost kind of struggling against this constraint which she cannot any longer name right and uh, as you as many people know she dies by suicide right uh, and it's it's a, it's a tragic event and then kind of makes her a sort of a, a, a sort of a legend you know even now people look back uh, at her uh, you know the bell jar which was, was really a record of her, her sort of emotional breakdown. Um, but soon enough, within two or three years, Betty Friedan writes The Feminine Mystic, where she actually identifies the strange ailment that kind of is ailing all women, all middle-class women in America, this depression which all of them see as something wrong with themselves. And she identifies that it is really about the familial structure in America, which has become so constraining, uh, for women, that they don't have space to speak their minds. And this actually, in a sense, kickstarts the feminist movement uh, in America. You know, and there's consciousness raising. Then there are women's groups that come together. They raise various kinds of social issues and social questions. But the thing is uh, that, oddly enough, the language for identifying what the problem was is uh, in a collective and transformative sense, was not available to Sylvia Plath, even though she was she was she was a real genius with poetry. Uh, the moment had to arrive where this is recognized as collect as as a collective problem for women. That's just one example. Uh, the other example is so this is one and the kind of opposite example is that if you look at Iranian cinema, for example, uh, which all of us many of us love. Uh, a lot panahi the works of Kiarustami, you know uh, Majeed, you everybody her Baaf, all of these people so when you look at uh, you know and all the films that we will remember you know i mean there are exceptions of course there are there is a long long lineage and a long history but the classics of iranian cinema which define it for us for our generation are all made after 1980. 1980 is when, you know, I mean, the Iranian revolution happens uh, just before that. And these very strict censorship laws are placed on on the cinema. And uh, so historians of film and social historians, uh, you know, in Iran, Hamid um, Nafisi and other people, they argue that in fact it was the censorship laws that that pushed many of these directors to find a new language through which they could tell their stories. And hence this this brilliant creativity, hence this kind of uh, remarkable use of the camera, which is very different from the language of uh, the Hollywood camera, for example, you know, so even Laura Mulvey writes about this, that Kiarostami's camera is unique in that, say, for example, in Through the Olive Trees, he holds back. The climax is really shot from a mile away. So you don't actually know what happens to, you know, those of you who the film happens to the central couple, whether they actually fall in love, whether they walk away. You don't know because the camera does not let you see. This is something which a Hollywood camera would never have done. It doesn't know how to hold back. So so this non-intrusiveness, even while telling the story, is something very unique uh, to the language of Iranian cinema. And many scholars have argued that it was, in fact, a product of censorship. Rather than, you know. So so not to to validate the censorship, but to say that art finds ways and censorship at, at, at times might have strange effects which were not, imagined by those who imposed it hmm. right and that's that's what i'm trying to say
0: because yeah. you asked that question yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. So, uh, yeah i mean then is it really seen in like because in the earlier uh thread which mm. you were saying about mm. uh the the movement uh in america so is it always sort of um uh, working in creative endeavors or it could be sort of in other oh yes
1: sure i was going to go towards that so for example i, w- I said language law i said you know other means of communication so, for example, uh, I'm going to get slightly theoretical here, but you'll see the reason why I'm doing that. So, one of the defining uh, figures of linguistic theory in the 20th century was this man called Ferdinand de uh, you know, who writes a book called The Course in General Linguistics in the year 1917, I think. So, one of the major things that Saussure and Saussure's major contribution was that he was taking over from earlier scholars' work primarily of philologists or historians of language. We're looking at the historical development of languages, the language families. You must have heard the Indo-European family of languages. So you're actually drawing family trees of languages and you know seeing how maybe, say, Sanskrit and Latin related You know far back, you know, things like that. Sasur, in fact, was the first person who came and wanted to study, uh, instead of this historical trajectory of language, the structures of language at a particular moment. So it was like looking at this kind of flowing river, when you're looking at this kind of changing transform transformation of language from one uh, to the other, changes within the language, so a kind of flowing historical trajectory. And Sasur would kind of want to kind of stop that at a particular moment, take a cross-section, look at that cross-section and look at the structure. Right. So in this sense, structuralism is born in the 20th century uh, with Saussure and then then later in anthropology and social and cultural anthropology with Lévi-Strauss. Right. He, he applies many of the structuralist theories to, to other sort of aspects of society, but not to get too technical there. So the, one of the major things that Saussure does is that he makes a distinction between the structure of language, which makes possible meaning and the individual use of language. Right, so like I was saying at the beginning of this conversation, because we both studied a certain amount of grammar, of, or which has certain common rules and laws, we are making sense to each other. But it is simultaneously true that the way that you use this language, English, let's say, mm. because we're conversing in it, and the way I use it are significantly different. They have to be. Mm. Right. So there's the structure within which a common minimum laws and norms we follow, which is why we are able to understand each other. But on the other hand, there are infinite variety of differences in the way individuals use this language. They don't, don't use the same expressions. They will use different adjectives in the same situation. They will express themselves emotionally differently. So, to make it very simple, Sasur said that language is actually not operated by similarities, but by differences. So, in the sense that you and I, let's Mm. take the letter T, you and I write T completely differently, right? But both of those, say for example, I might cross it and you might not, you just kind of draw this thing with a slight, uh, you know, line in the middle. Yeah. Very different T's. But both of them are identified by the reader as T. Huh. So Sasur says that T remains a T as long as it does not become an F. Right. So any variety of T's would be acceptable as long as it does not change into an others other sign. Right. So many different variations are possible within how a T is written. Right. So, huh. So, yeah, so is me. it
0: so is it uh, fair to say that these variations are improvisations or no? Yeah. Yes, okay. perhaps.
1: Okay. I'm hmm. making, Sasu doesn't say it, but I'm trying to make that connection, right? Hmm. So, the, what he's saying is that this broad structure is called Lung and these individual things that we do, these utterances, are called Parole. Everyday language, right? Hmm. And then he asks, what is the relationship between Lung and Parole? Hmm. And he says, love makes these utterances possible. The structure makes possible the individual utterances. But if Hmm. the individual utterances did not change, then language would be frozen in time. It's because we improvise that language changes over time. The structure is not written in stone. Historically, the structure will change because individuals make a difference over time.
0: Hmm. But isn't it ironic because structure implicitly means there's a structure, there's a grammar which shouldn't change, right?
1: True, but grammars change, don't they? We have words now that we're having to learn from people who are 10, 20 years younger than us, which were not used. When they speak amongst themselves, my students even, I don't understand sometimes, even though that's English. Because they're using uh, a lingo which, which I am not familiar with. And if I were to start using uh, the lingo that I used in college, they would not understand me. So something has definitely changed. How is this possible? Right. Um, because individuals over time begin to use words differently. So I think, say, for example, I use the word genius twice. In this conversation, so if you look at the root of the word genius initially, even as it is used in Shakespeare, it simply means spirit. It could mean a fairy or a spirit that governs, you know, a person's uh, energy, their life trajectory, etc., etc. Over time, it actually became what we understand it today, which is a man of or a woman of great talent. A person of great talent. So oh. this meaning has changed. How did it change? Did somebody kind of make a law to say from this day onwards genius will not mean spirit but will mean a person of talent? No. It changed mm. through the changes in usage. Now how this happens is a matter for linguistics to to kind yeah. of another than different contexts have different kinds of things, but it happens through improvisation.
0: Correct, correct. Beautiful, no, really, because I, yeah. I, sorry, sorry, to but I remember my conversation with Ganesh Devi, yeah. and he beautifully put it that it's also. I mean, one of the reasons is that because they want to belong somewhere. Like there, there mm-hmm. is a, uh, so so the the slang came out of just having privacy. Like they don't mm-hmm. want to. Openly say the same words in front of parents or people or like outside the community, Mm. and that's how they that slang came into existence. So one of the reasons is privacy or sense of belonging of a community, uh, Mm. so that they improvise on existing words and then collectively Mm. decide that this means this, and if it then yeah if then it just transpires into other uh, groups, then it can come into the larger collective but uh, yeah so it's, it's like important.
1: camouflage that's absolutely right it's like a camouflage it's it's a code mm. in a sense you know but the code is not like a kind of a software code in the sense it's not kind of decided and written down and there are no it, it kind of it's no one writes down a rule book for this but it's mm. it's improvised right it it yeah. kind of takes on a certain kind of and then it's kind of distributed it proliferates etc cetera, et cetera. so it's much more flexible and spontaneous rather than kind of some somebody kind of uh, codifying, you know, um, what yes. each word would mean. Yes. Yeah. So yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and so you yeah, you were saying about um the hmm. the sort of reasons of changing can be inquired in hmm. the linguistic study. But hmm. how does it how does it change uh, like what happens when the improvise? Like what are the outcomes of understanding this or are there like systematic ways to understand that things in different disciplines are improvised and because of X, Y, Z reasons?
1: Right. So for example, I mean, improvisations, like I said, could happen for for a huge variety of reasons, right? Because someone feels constrained. One needs to find a new way of communicating in a particular situation if you're talking about language. I was also thinking of the law, for example, right? So, when you have uh, the, you know, a sort of a legal code, as every nation state does, that legal code is not, once again, uh, the code forevermore. You know, laws change, there are amendments to laws. And the many times this, so you, you can, you can hardly think of anything more stable than a penal code or, or, you know, or maybe, you know, it, it seems like something that is almost kind of, um, uh, eternal, hmm. oddly hmm. enough, that's the impression we have. But the thing is the, you know, every constitution would have every law, uh, sort of legal system will have the space for amendment and change, right? Um, what initiates these changes, that's interesting. That does not actually come from within the legal system. Mm -hmm. The changes come because of a certain push, a certain crisis that is generated in society, a demand uh, from a collective of people, from social movements that the law must, in fact, now change because the conditions have become different. So, for example, um, uh, the domestic violence laws, let's say, Right. Or uh, uh, up to a certain point, I mean, let's say divorce laws, uh, you know, all of these, uh, you know, or even sort of the caste atrocity laws. Right. Uh, the way these were formulated also depended, uh, you know, uh, also depended largely because of, of a certain kind of social condition that recognized something to be a problem which was not recognized before. It. right. You were you have to have the social the condition of possibility in society for this particular social crisis to be recognized discursively and legally as a problem. And that that push actually, and of course, always there are conservative sections of society will stand against that kind of progressive change. So that, that collective push must actually be generated from society itself, right? Um, so in a sense... Um,
0: is it a you know, reaction? Is it a reaction? Improvisation is always a reaction?
1: Uh, no. That's not what I was saying. I was trying to say it's not a reaction to the law per se. It is a reaction. It it, it is generated or it is kind of, uh, I mean, spawned by particular conditions and crises, uh, of of mm. society. Some something must happen for that improvisation to take place, right? Mm. When when you're talking about social and historical. Uh, contexts mm. when we talk about individual contexts, the question might be answered differently but when you talk about you know social transformations historical transformations there have to be certain contexts which make possible that improvisation right so but to go back to the question you're asking improvisation is always risky right mm. especially in these contexts that i talk i'm talking about whether it be law it be language it be the question of social norm a uh, deviation is always punishable oh. right uh, So an improvisation carries a risk So example I mean even if you kind of go back to the context of a play, if an actor improvises without the permission of the director on stage, he is liable to be pulled up for it right after oh. the show you, but it will not be taken taken very uh, very uh, lightly. Mm-hmm. unless the actor is a great star it depends also then on the power equation of of what is going on backstage but the thing is uh when are improvisations okay when do they actually engender praise for creativity at what times do they actually lead to you know censure and punishment those very things good. also need to be understood so and there i think it's very important to make a yes yeah, sorry yeah
0: no so so yeah just because because we'll venture into that just maybe take Mm -hmm. a one step back and uh, can you also give some context of what does because when we spoke on the phone you spoke about uh, performing arts uh, uh, or improvisation happening on the streets and and different Mm -hmm. forms of arts right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. what does even improvise mean in the context of performing arts maybe we can start there and then go deeper into yeah uh,
1: yeah uh, so, uh, just to say one small thing, just to finish my thought, and then I'll come to, come to this immediately, which is that I think when one needs to make a distinction between what we understand as a norm and what we understand as law, in the sense that a norm is something that you can somewhat deviate from without a, a sort of garnering much attracting punishment to yourself. Right. So if it's a norm to wear saris to school, that which as it was in, say, my grandmother's generation, uh, you could slowly deviate from it one day, wear a salwa kameez and get away with it. Right. And 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 it would not actually it would it might sort of uh, raise eyebrows. People might talk about it, et cetera, but it won't actually uh, sort of. You know, so by the extent of the deviation from the norm defines what the reaction from society will be. How far can you go without attracting punishment? With the law, things are much clearer. You're either on the right side of it or you're on the wrong side of it, right? So so there that's kind of a yes or no situation. So we need to also understand what is being improvised against or in you know, whether it's it's a certain kind of a norm, where it's much it's less perhaps less risky with the law, you know. So anyway. Yeah. Um uh, no, performance. I... Yeah, huh. sorry.
0: No, no, I mean, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. a perfect, like, point where we could Mm -hmm. uh, start start off this, that in law, it's kind of black and white and in certain realms of society and life there is some play and happening, but yeah, but but in terms of creativity or in terms Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. these, yeah, creative sort of uh, uh, ventures, it's quite Mm -hmm. celebrated, so maybe that's where we can start off that like what yeah. does it mean also in in context yeah. of
1: art so this is where i you know when we spoke before i said that i might in fact question the question a little bit
0: mm-hmm. because
1: uh when we speak of improvisation largely um uh it's it seems that again once again that structure that there's something that is kind of stable and kind of a structure that that is that is more or less kind of mapped out and someone who is uh, or or you know actors who are uh, doing something different from it, moving away from it to a certain degree. Now, this assumes more than anything else, what is the structure? In the case of theater, it largely tends to be the text, hmm. the text or the play. Now, the truth of the matter is that in the 20th century, one of the first things towards the middle of the 20th century, or even before that, that was destabilized, was uh, you know the centrality of the text in the performance. Right. So one of the major upheavals against traditional theatre was in questioning the text as the origin and as the central defining feature of, of performance, right? So um how does this happen? So let me just quickly say that uh, so in the nineteen fifties in different places, whether it'd been America, in parts of Europe, uh Oddly enough, in in you know uh, places like Japan as well, there was a certain kind of a resistance to the traditional structure of theatre, which is uh, the proscenium, which binds uh, you know theatrical performances within a particular space, where in fact there is uh, a you know a certain kind of um, um, theater that bases itself unfailingly on the text, of that that the text may in fact be radical, it might be very experimental, but there is always a text, right? Hmm. This was in fact put to question in the 50s and 60s. And this movement that then emerges is broadly, and there are many different kinds of uh, names for it, but broadly now it is called performance art right and in the 50s a person called alan capro some started something in america which he called happenings happenings and the happenings were literally this the fact that one would and this was oddly enough not simply a movement by performers and theater artists but a place where uh, visual artists designers performance artists uh, you know those who painted sculptors musicians they all came together um, and there was not simply a transgression of the traditional boundaries of the theater but there was also a certain kind of multidisciplinary experimentation uh-huh. so in these happenings what was being said is that that this is an event and this is a singular event it is going to happen only once like events in life it will never be repeated again. It is not preceded by a text which we are interpreting. Our all our efforts are not going towards the best possible interpretation of that text, which is our origin. The whole of the happening was something that was happened that was literally happening in the here and now, right? Mm. It was entirely spontaneous from beginning to end, and the, and the and the emphasis shifted from the product. the process. Process. So in fact, painters would actually become part of the happening where the process of painting became a certain kind of performance. Right. Where audiences would come in not knowing what was going to happen to them. And spatially as well, there was a huge amount of churning because one did not want to have that constraint of the proscenium stage where the audience was separated from, from the performers by... By a particular distance, by the box stage, by this kind of little window through which you looked into another world, many of these happenings also happened in you know gallery spaces, right? Where gallery spaces became performance spaces, where audiences and performers were in fact occupying the same rooms, hmm. you know, intimately connecting with each other. The gallery also was not being used as a gallery, but as as you know, a place of performance. So, there was a simultaneous rebellion against the gallery space by artists because of the way the gallery constrained art, constrained art, and also against the proscenium by performers. in an odd way, it was in fact a kind of rebellion against the elitism of these spaces. the fact that you know neither performance nor art were accessible in uh, flexible ways to broader audiences right so performance art over time actually moved out into different kinds of spaces street spaces etc etc but what was emphasized more than anything else uh in the case of performance uh people who were coming to it from performance was that we don't need a text to precede the performance we will do it in the here and now everything that happens happens singularly at this moment and it will never be repeated again
0: but there's no framework as, in there's no broad outline as well. I mean, a theme or something.
1: Themes were there, obviously, mm. but the the- but but a concern could be there. So a concern. So, for example, one of the most famous performance artists of the 70s was a woman called Marina Abramovic, who belonged to uh, you know uh, East Europe. Um, she was actually from Serbia. I mean, former Yugos- Yugoslavia. So uh, she started working in Belgrade as a solo performance artist and one of her abiding concerns was with actually with physical pain and endurance, right? Uh, So many of the performances that she would do were actually uh, performances where she placed herself in front of her audience and inflicted pain upon herself, right? Uh, or you know, there were uh, very famous pieces that where, that she did. Where so there was one where she uh, she carved with a blade a five pointed star on her stomach, right? And as uh, and that star was then the symbol of you know the oppression that Yugoslavia was facing and Tito's oppression and all of that. It became a political comment. Her physical pain then became political comment on the repressive structures of of the society that she was uh, sort of living in. Um, And many of these performances were actually about endurance, about how much her body could withstand. And in this sense, she was throwing an ethical challenge towards the audiences often. These were audiences who were used to the theater, but the theater happened on stage and they were far removed from it and they were expected to be passive but she would often put her audience in a in a situation where they they f- they felt uh, the dilemma of whether to intervene in the performance and stop it or not wow. so this ethical dilemma was something that 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 allowed her to put spectatorship itself into question so the fact that you don't belong to the performance, if the decimona is dying, it doesn't concern you. You can revel in the pity and terror without worrying about the actress because it's all as if Shakespeare wrote it. So it's being simulated. That simulation is taken away. So as if is being replaced by it is, there's no character that is being embodied. This is my body. Here I am in front of you. I'm present. And this is happening to me. That becomes performance art, which changes the entire relationship, even the ethical relationship with the spectator. So it becomes a, a very, very different kind of... Uh, so, so Marina which does a numerous amounts of work, uh, different works in the, in the 70s. And, uh, and then she becomes a huge star, and then she moves to America later. And then in 2005 or 2010, there was a retrospective of her work at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And uh, a group of younger artists and dancers were auditioned and hired to recreate many of these classic pieces, which nobody had seen. They, did, they had only seen photographs. But then the question was raised that, well, if this was performance art, how can you, in fact, recreate? It It mm-hmm. was meant to be a happening that was one time only. The intensity and the singularity of mom- of that moment was never to be repeated. That's why it was so valuable. How is it that you're now recreating a retrospective of these classics? You know, so that in itself was put to question. So, in terms of, uh, so then this whole thing uh, would destabilize the question of improvisation. When we speak about improvisation and it, we assume that there is a text against which a certain kind of improvisation might happen this whole movement had made improvisation the center of its quest right so every event was in fact an improvisation and no one including the artist knew what was going to happen
0: this is so fascinating in indian context at least we also have we a common word right prayog yeah. uh, it's a it's a it's a practice it's a performance mm-hmm. so is is this because of the same connotation of you are recreating uh, almost as the happening, but yes, there's a mm-hmm. slightly tighter structure as opposed to which uh, Marina sort of uh, like very open.
1: So, I think as far as I understand in the Indian context, prayog would either mean application or experimentation, either mm. of those, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that, a prayog.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, at least in in the Marathi theater we say that as which is like today I have a performance, but yeah. it it has that connotation that it's going to be recreated and it will yes. be different than the earlier performance. Yeah, that's why they're kind mm-hmm. of experimenting, and yeah. it wouldn't be as as real as or as replica of a cinema which is which can't be changed one shot, but mm-hmm. here it's going to be little improvised.
1: Right. So, so now I have to come to that. So having said all of this, it might mis- seem like I am implying uh, that every show of, uh, you know, a theatrical text, uh, every performance of a theatrical text is, in fact, non-improvisation. I'm not saying that at all, because mm-hmm. one other thing that happens in the 20th century hugely uh, is the, the idea of the stability of the text is itself uh you know uh done away with i mean it's put to question seriously so often one so this was actually a question in our postgraduate exam when i was still studying literature um uh, so in the MA, ma exam so one of our uh you know in the literary theory course uh, so we were asked if the mona lisa is in the louvre where is hamlet Uh, (laughs) Ah, where is the text of Hamlet, right? Is it in the, so first of all, there's a whole lot of debate about the various uh, folio and quarter editions of Shakespeare, like which was, so Shakespeare, obviously, it was performed first, then published, right? Mm -hmm. So which versions were being first published, which was the authority? authoritative version, which would you go to as the the, the 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 sort of the the single most important and authentic text etc all those questions were there then secondly was Hamlet in that printed text or was it in Olivia's performance is it in Haider? is it in where is it right so every time Hamlet is being performed uh, it is being recreated.
0: Recreated, yes.
1: Yeah. And not just that, every performance of the same production is a new new recreation. Hmm. So it's not as if if Olivia Lawrence, Olivia performs Hamlet on such and such date, his performance over 600 shows is the same as the one on the first date. Each performance, and this also becomes a theoretical um sort of intervention in the in 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 the 1980s and 90s from performance studies scholar that each performance is a unique event right which in fact even cannot be recorded so if you record a performance it is not the performance your presence and the proximity of two people in a or you know more than uh you know uh, at least two people a performer and a spectator is necessary for the performance uh, to be actually, uh, you know, understood and experienced, because the embodiment and the, f- the 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 presence of people in a live event defines, uh, you know, these uh, these live arts. When you record it, it's a kind of a mnemonic device of the performance. It's not the performance itself, right? So something is lost in this translation between the live event and the record. Right. And that is precisely because and this is a related point, each event is yeah. uh, unique. Yeah. And if you ask actors, they will tell you that no two shows are the same no matter how much they follow the script and the reductions.
0: Correct, correct. So there huh, mm, yes. And, and 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 so do like because in the mm. early sort of nineteen hundreds these kind mm. of rebel or questioning or mm. performance ways of performing were challenged and and questioned and then improvised upon uh it will it be like how where will these theater of the absurd or pantomime or these different kinds of genres of theater are they responses to improvise or they are structurally totally different and and just like came out of i don't know so
1: for example the theatre of the absurd that you're talking about was also a kind of response to the devastation of the world war right uh, in the sense that if the two major genres in the western context of theatre were seen to have been comedy and tragedy with its defining features post uh, world war because of the extent of the devastation that was noticed, that, that was experienced uh, the, you know, across Europe and the world over as, as well, it seemed um, that those genres do not actually capture the emotional landscape of what had happened to humanity. Hmm. The extent of that violence and devastation was in fact absurd, meaningless, sort of kind of almost... Bringing this nihilistic perspective to ri- life of a meaningless world that wasn't going anywhere. Even in tragedy, there's rege- redemption. There's a certain kind of, you know, um, transformative potential in tragedy. In the absurd, in fact, there is nothing. Okay. There's 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 this pure meaninglessness.
0: Hmm. So it's right? a it response to a social setup. Historical context. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to. Challenging the text itself,
1: the textual challenge comes, but it comes as a corollary of this primary impulse, right? So when when says sort of you know, who are you going to talk about? Beckett, Pinter, you know, all of these people when they're writing, the the text obviously changes, but that's not the impulse. The impulse mm-hmm. comes from this kind of how to understand what kind of text can I write to to capture the utter banality, hopelessness. Meaninglessness of the world, that, as I experience it today. Oh. So, waiting for Godo is not waiting for God because God has disappeared from this landscape, right? It's 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 a meaningless kind of uh, sort of Godless landscape uh-huh. of absolute uh-huh. devastation, and the same things keep repeating without going anywhere. So it's a it's it's a picture of. I often feel that it's a picture of hell where there are no devils, but it's basically time that is kind of endlessly looping on itself, right? Waiting for Godot, text like that.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Right? So that's the sense it creates this absolute hopelessness and devastation. Right? So that the, the textual improvisation actually follows this. That needs to actually find a new language, like I said in the case of Iranian cinema. Then the new language is is the improvisation has to have an impulse that comes from somewhere, which mm. is which is uh, deeper. Yeah. If you have mm. a question or otherwise, I had another point which I will. Yeah.
0: Tell no, you. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of tie the and and because of my nature of mm. trying mm. to find structure, I'm <laughs> mm. I'm just like. Loosely, no. actually, I'm trying to articulate, it seems like it's always improvisation has in the performing art space mm. is, is somewhat a response or a reaction uh, is what I'm uh, comprehending.
1: If you put it like that, then everything we do in life is a, is a response of a certain
0: kind. Uh, no, but, a it's, re- but this reaction is looking at something outside you as opposed to when I was having a chat with uh, uh, on music in the same topic, it's typically your own expression and your own discovery. So something within and something outside. I'm trying to just connect the dots and I don't know whether I'm...
1: Uh, no, 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 you're making sense. But I, I just want to kind of problematize this outside-inside distinction because I do believe that when we speak of impulses from the inside, those impulses are also conditioned by the world in which we belong, the lives we live, right? So the reason why Tagore has a certain kind of impulse, uh, you know, uh, standing on Southern Street uh, to write a poem about the dawn in Calcutta also uh, is defined by who he is, which family he is born into, what training he has had a child. Right. You cannot separate the two. There is no, there is nothing that comes ex nihilo. The way we, so the most spontaneous of our, what we consider the most spontaneous of our impulses, love, for example, or, you know, mm, melancholy, all of this, the way even we articulate to ourselves, these impulses are also defined by our social conditioning, which is why each of us is so unique. Otherwise, you know, we we we, yeah. we 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 use different languages. We tell ourselves different stories about our own lives. In fact, even what we say about our own lives to ourselves, even will change over time because our circumstances have changed, right? So, therefore, there is there is no it kind of
0: untouched yeah, is bit, hmm. yeah
1: untouched truth inside ourselves which is not touched by the outside. That's what I'm trying to say.
0: Correct, correct. Yeah. yeah, it need not be binary. It's not like it. It can't be fragmented. It's it's yeah. it's a continuum. I think, like it's, uh,
1: absolutely, yeah. yeah. Each influences the other. Not to say that the inside does not influence mm. the outside as well. That also happens, which is why things change in the world. No, uh, but I just wanted to give you one other example. So one of the ways in which this happens in, uh, you know, in a 20th century theater, one of the major uh, sort of uh, interventions in this is in the theater of the Boal, who actually coins uh, the the theater of the oppressed. Right, it comes from you know uh, uh, South America. Um, uh, theater of the oppressed actually talks about a theater which does not imagine itself as a totality. So there is a text of a certain kind, right? But Boal does not imagine this text as a totality. He says that the the structure of this text, the ending of this text, the process with which the text will develop, will also depend on the spectators. Mm -hmm. And he coins this term called the spect-actors. So the play is performed and a certain situation is created in the performance space. And then and this is a, this is this a mode of social intervention as well this theater so a certain social problem is presented among in front of an audience and then the audience is asked, "How would you end this or two possible conclusions are given and say which conclusion do you think is right and why and then the spectators decide either they come and intervene, they perform it themselves uh the ending they prefer or. Uh, or they suggest a particular way that the play ends. So the text does not remain a closed circuit. It opens itself out to the possibility of improvisation, not just from the actor, but the spectator themselves. And in this way, a certain kind of social change is imagined, right? So the theater of the oppressed is theater that has actually truly democratized itself in taking away authorship from merely the author and giving it to the collective. Wow right so that's one mode of what you
0: would call improvisation mm beautiful
1: that's what,
0: yeah then again, again just double clicking on this part mm. um is this because so i'm i'm designing for last 20 years and the more you deep dive into your particular domain or subject mm. uh, you're trying to find deeper meanings and deeper layers of of understanding and thereby trying to find some sort of abstraction to it so that you can keep it more democratic or keep it more open to people. So does it happen because you're uncovering Mm -hmm. deeper layers uh, Mm -hmm. to keep that performance alive, to keep that piece of art alive? Or is it your self-inquiry into something? I mean, I'm just trying to understand that why right? Why does this happen? Also, I mean, and and so many levels it's happening. That uh, the kind
1: of person I am, I would often I would again say social context. Why does it happen in South America? Why does it not happen in England and quite the same? Why do you have an artist like this in this context? In a sense, Boal is also intervening in severe conditions of poverty in this society, lack of education. Uh, and he finds theater, a mode through which this kind of democratic intervention can happen for an audience, right? For similar reasons why Badal Sharkar in India would do the theater that he was doing. He was doing, he found a theater. So in, in Bengal in the 1970s, Badal Sharkar creates a theater that is called the Third Theater today, which takes theater away from the proscenium and travels in the villages. Uh Right. Because his impulse for creating theatre is to actually create a kind of creating a collective space. And it means nothing if it were the proscenium, because only the middle class could come and watch. He wants to perform for the rural poor, Uh uh, for the working classes. So he travels with his theatre. And that means that his theatre needs to take a certain form, a certain kind of shape. It needs to, for example, in his play in the Michil, uh, which is the world's classic play, Michil as in Julus, it's translated in Hindi as Julus, the procession. Um, ultimately, the structure of the play is that in the end, the audience becomes part of the Michil and the actors follow it. So in every show at the end of it, the actors have the, the actors have actually, you know, they, they pick up one, one member of the audience after the other until you know 60, 70 people are walking around in that space and the actors have moved away. So they have actually metaphorically the audience now has created the procession which was started by the actors. I and mean, it's a long play, but it's about collective social transformation. Hmm. So the thing that it happens here. But not in let's say an economically advanced, developed country, is because the need for it is here for mm-hmm. this improvisation. Mm-hmm. And you will say that again I'm pushing it to the an external and reactions. Not necessarily. The thing is that one one reacts as an artist to the world around. Right? What it sees around. So so okay. the fact is that poverty is also personal. It defines lives in a certain way, what one is able to do or not do. An artist of a certain kind feels it imperative to respond to it. Right? So then he finds, improvises uh, to find the language. I'm giving an example. There are many other reasons why artists might improvise. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, this can go on. on So, to conclude, uh, I've seen these cycles at a very superficial level, but maybe Mm. you can, like, give some more insights Mm. that... uh, there has been waves or cyclical patterns, right? There was art for art, sake moment, maybe before that there was like didactic art or whatever. Like these cycles are there, right? Um, again, are these in is these there are micro cycles of improvisation, or like how do you look at this at a larger uh, timeline? Like uh, is it
1: so i mean and, I, on, I and
0: obviously sorry and obviously sorry. like how do you look at the future also
1: <laughs> so i i'm i'm not a, you know i'm not a historian of art and i think uh, the important thing uh with these kinds of historical conclusions is that they have to be very specific uh to to context to particular uh uh, particular social and historical conditions, etc., cetera, et cetera, particular art forms as well. But I do think you're right that there are microcycles, right? Hmm. Hmm. It's not like one overarching change. Like the closer you go, it's like looking at something under a microscope, right? So from the outside, um, so I remember my grandmother was a doctor and a pathologist. When I was very young, she'd taken me to her laboratory and shown me, um, you know, her microscope. And I saw these, Brilliantly coloured moving objects and I asked so what what are these? And he said, These are germs. And I said then I looked out and I said, Where are they? He said, You can't see them. But they uh-huh. were they were amazing inside that under that lens. So the thing is, the closer you go, the more these kind of micro this absolutely vivid, colourful, uh, complex structures become visible. Right. But there are also kind of broader structures, even with the, within these artists that I've mentioned, either Boal or Sharkar, their lineages and their kind of uh, what they have left behind, the people they have influenced. Even those are very, very complex. So I spoke, I spoke of poverty and social change. Boal is the most popular among corporates right now, because Boal's workshop <laughs> games are extremely popular for corporate training across the world. So that's one strange irony, right? That, you know, these games have been picked up out of their context. And so so it's complex. It has many, many different kinds of implications and changes which which the artists might not have even envisioned. But they happen. And one doesn't have control over it as well. Well, as I see, what I see for the future, this thing that I started with, I do feel that Every moment of kind of restriction and uh, unfreedom, after a point, has to generate its opposite at some point. And so, and I think these things also are in a continuum. And one cannot have restrictive conditions socially and then have absolutely free art. It doesn't work that way. Uh. So things things affect each other, uh, and that doesn't mean that only society affects arts. Uh, Arts also affect society. Okay. It goes both ways, which is the point of hope.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the fact that it is, in fact, a dialectic or a dialogue between stability and change is is what allows you to continue hoping for more improvisation and yeah. more, you know. Awesome. Yeah, yeah I think, I- uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, this, is a, this oh. is a good note to end because... Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it gives a lot of hope and also it, it kind of lays down uh, mm. a, a cyclical pattern which is kind of again a hope so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cool, uh, thanks a lot uh, Trina for giving Thank your you time, so it much. was wonderful talking to you, obviously yeah. I have to comprehend this much better uh, made lot of notes and, and have to connect a lot of things to understand the context better but I hope I a lot. didn't go
1: into too many different directions because my intention was not at all to be kind of, I was trying to keep it, uh,
0: you know, as. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like these names uh, it's, it's worth investigating because I'm not like, uh, like in, in, in the world of design, uh, you go deep dive and the whole idea of audio can, was to just expand and understand other. uh, uh, I wouldn't
1: know the names you mentioned if you, if you gave a lecture (laughs) on design. So yeah, that's fine. I guess we learn from each other.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Okay, uh, thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Yeah. 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 And that's it from today's gan session. For show notes and more gan, visit audiogan.com. And if you wish to connect with me, I am at moments on Instagram. Until then, take care.